know, we started a series of sermons on the book of Genesis two Sabbaths ago. This is the third in that series, and we're going to have only five sermons. So this is the third of the of, of five sermons on the book of Genesis. And it's found in Genesis chapter 3. And uh, Genesis chapter 3, of course, concerns itself with the temptation and the fall. And I've titled my message for the morning, It's Only a Little Thing. It's Only a Little Thing. And for our opening passage of Scripture, we're going to read the first seven verses of, of uh, Genesis chapter 3, which says... Now the serpent was more cunning than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, Has God indeed said, You shall not eat of every tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees which is in the midst of the garden, which is in the garden, but of the fruit of the tree which is in the, is in the, the midst of the garden, God has said, you shall not eat, eat it, don't even touch it, because if you do, you're going to die. So, this, excuse me, don't, don't eat it, don't touch it, lest you die. And the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. For God knows that in the day that you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, that it was pleasant to the eyes, and a tree desirable to make her wise, she took up its fruit and ate. She also gave to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together to make themselves coverings. I seriously doubt that fig leaves, fig leaves are going to cover what they've just done. Before we get too deeply into our study this morning, we ought to make some observations that will add to our understanding of Genesis 3. The first observation is that man did not have inherent life. I hope you caught that. Man did not have inherent life. And this is to say that he was not immortal. He did not have life within himself that would sustain him forever. This, by the way, was as true of his spiritual life as it was of his physical life. Therefore, from the very beginning, because he didn't have life within himself, he must have access to an external source of life. And this, of course, was the purpose of the tree of life there in the garden. As long as he had access to it, he could, he could partake of it, and through it, he could continue to live. It was the tree of life that kept him alive. He was immortal only as long as he ate from the fruit of that tree. And the point is 
that he must remain in close proximity to the source of the tree. Because if he didn't, if he wasn't within the proximity of, of life, then he would begin to die. He had to stay near the tree. It was the tree of life. He couldn't wander away from it because to wander away meant death. And it's more than significant that the first statement of the doctrine of an immortal soul was made by the tempter. It was the serpent who said, you shall not surely die. This statement was at the heart of the temptation and was in direct contradiction to God's word of warning. If you eat of it, if you touch it, you will die. No, said the serpent, you will not surely die. God has said that in the day you eat, you will die, but don't believe it. I'm telling you something else. Man was not immortal, and he still isn't. And in order for him to retain the potential for immorality, for immortality, excuse me, in order for him to retain the potential for immortality, he needed to do that which would allow him to remain in the garden so that he could have constant access to the tree of life. Quite simply, he needed to obey God. That has never changed, my friends. If we expect to have immortality granted to us, we need to stay close to God. We need to believe him. We need to trust him. We need to, be, we need to obey him. Now, our obedience doesn't save us. We're saved by the grace of Jesus. But it keeps us in proximity, close proximity, to the source of life that we need. And if we disobey and walk off, we cut ourselves loose from the one who can grant us eternal life, Jesus Christ. In the day that you eat thereof, you will surely die. That's the first observation. Man did not have immortality in himself. The second observation that we need to make is the one that we've just alluded to. And that is that in Genesis 3, sin is pictured as disobedience to God. When God said, don't eat of the tree of uh, the knowledge of good and evil, that appears like a very arbitrary ruling. About as arbitrary as you can imagine. There was nothing wrong with that tree. If God had permitted them to eat from that tree, they could have eaten and nothing would ever have happened to them. There was nothing in the fruit itself that caused them to begin to die. The only thing wrong with eating from that tree was that God said, don't do it. There is no other principle involved. And the message is loud and clear. To disobey God is to commit sin. But I ask, doesn't God have the right to be arbitrary? He is, after all, man's creator. He's the one who made man, and therefore he has the right to determine what man's code of conduct should be. Obedience will not save us, but disobedience may very well cause us to be lost. 
creator, in fact, is the only one who deserves the right to tell us how to act. Don't let anybody but God tell you what is morally right and morally wrong, and you can find that in God's word, the Bible. Don't let anybody tell you what is morally right and morally wrong. To him alone belongs the authority to say, you may freely eat or you may not freely eat. That prerogative belongs to God alone. The third observation we need to make deals with the tree of knowledge of good and evil. Satan, through the serpent, told Eve that if she were to eat of that tree, she would become as God, knowing good and evil. God knows the difference between the two. God knows the difference between good and, the, and evil. Um, he certainly knew it. He knew what God was, not what good was, but he also knew what evil was. Not because he participated in evil, but because he had witnessed the fall of Lucifer and the war in heaven, he knew firsthand that evil is not a good thing, no matter what we think about it. Prior to the fall, Adam and Eve knew only good. After the fall, they learned evil as well. But because they were made in God's image, they were free moral agents, and therefore God permitted them to make that choice. God did not attempt to withhold this knowledge from them. Uh, had they not been free moral agents, God could have prevented them from the opportunity of learning what evil was by going to the, the, uh, the tree of knowledge of good and evil. But they were free moral agents. God said, don't do it. But it was their choice. They could if they wanted to, and they did. He placed the tree in the garden and asked them, don't eat of it. Because if you do, you're going to die. Um, there are two ways to learn evil. And this is precisely what the test was all about. You can learn evil by yielding to it, but you cannot learn it this way without suffering the consequences of your choice. And the consequence of sin is that you will surely die. And Adam and Eve's choice led them to death. They were banned from having access to the tree of life. They could no longer go into the garden. They could no longer go to that tree and consume its fruit and then live because of the fruit. And because he resisted, um, or you can learn evil by resisting it. This is what Jesus did when he was tempted. And because he resisted, he became the keenest analyst of sin that the world has ever known. He became an authority on it by refusing to yield to it. Unfortunately, I've heard it, and probably you have too, that there are those around today who will tell you that you cannot know sin unless you try it, unless you dabble in it, unless you get involved in it, unless you discover what it is firsthand. But don't you believe that? 
That's a lie just as surely as the lie that was told to Adam and Eve in the garden. To dabble in sin is to disobey. To disobey is to, is to die. To resist is to obey, and to obey is to live. The wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life. Now, let's take a closer look at the circumstances surrounding the temptation and the fall. Chapter 3, verse 1 declares that the serpent was, quote-unquote, more subtle than any beast of the field. And so he was. That's revealed by the question that he asked Eve. You see, his question, did God say that you shall not eat of the tree? That could have been answered truthfully by either a yes or a no, depending how, on how you understood the question. The question might mean, did God forbid you to eat of the trees? To which the answer then would have been no. God had graciously provided in the garden a great abundance of trees that were there to meet all of their needs, all of their physical needs. Or the question might have been, did God forbid you to eat from any particular tree? And the answer then would have to be yes. God did forbid that. But Eve responded first by telling of God's generosity in giving all of the trees for food. All that is, except one. And this should have told her of the great love that he had for her. Had he not loved her, he would never have provided so generously for her needs. He had done everything for her that he could possibly do to satisfy her needs and to minister to her wants. God is love, and he graciously provides. He had withheld from her nothing that would make her healthy, happy, and holy. Which is another way of saying that Eve absolutely had no reason to yield to the temptation of Satan. There was absolutely no excuse for her to sin. She was a perfect being in a perfect environment with every need supplied. Her sin was absolutely without excuse. There was no reason at all for her to disobey. Ah, ah, well, it's only a little thing. It's not going to matter much. Just a little thing. But in the temptation, Satan told two lies. The first was that she would not die. And the second was that she would be like God because now she would know good and evil. And Eve believed both of those lies. And because the tree was good for food, because it was a delight to the eyes, she now desired it because she wanted to be wise like God. And the point is that she thought she could be wise by believing the serpent and by not believing God. And so she chose the lies of Satan above the truth of God. But that doesn't happen today, does it? It doesn't happen that people 
think they can become intelligent by disbelieving God. I mean, that wouldn't happen in our time. People becoming intelligent by disbelieving, by dis disobeying God, and then they can be wise by believing a lie, by rejecting truth. Nobody thinks that anymore, do they? And here's the point. Disbelieving God is the very essence of sin. Listen to my favorite author. Eve really believed the words of Satan, but her belief did not save her from the penalty of sin. She disbelieved the words of God, and this was what led her to, to fall. In the judgment, catch this, in the judgment, men will not be condemned because they conscientiously believed a lie, but because they did not believe the truth of God, because they neglected the opportunity of learning what truth is, and notwithstanding the sophistry of Satan, to the contrary, it is always disastrous to disobey God. It is a sin to do so. And I would suggest that disbelieving God does not make one very wise. It does not. In fact, I'm going to suggest to you that not to believe God brings about true ignorance. Do you really believe in your heart? Do you really believe that you know more than God and that your wisdom can cause you and empower you to disobey him? Do you believe that? But Adam's fall is quite another story. Verse 17 of chapter 3 implies that he was convinced by what his wife said. And when we talk about Adam, we really could build quite a case for him. We could suggest, and it would be true, that Adam acted out of love. And what higher motive can be found than the motive of love? We could say, for example, that his love for his wife was greater than his love for himself and that he joined her in the fall as a self-sacrificing gesture of love. He didn't want her to face the consequences of disobedience alone. Give me the fruit. I'll eat it too. And after all, really, it was just a little thing anyway. And we stand back and say, what great love. Adam had it. Great love. And yet it only serves to emphasize the fact that disobedience to God is sin, regardless of the motive that prompts it, even the motive of love. And the consequences of sin are still the same. To disobey is to die, for the wages of sin is death. The truth of the matter is that he loved Eve more than he loved God. That's the truth of the matter. And Jesus said in Matthew 10, verse 37, that if you love father or mother, son or daughter, more than you love him, you're not worthy of his kingdom. Ah, really, just a little thing anyway. Can't be that many consequences to it. But let's take a look at some of the consequences of that little thing. And some of the consequences were immediate. 
For example, Satan had told them that they would be like God, knowing good and evil. And immediately, one of the consequences of the fall was that they had an influx of knowledge, an increase of knowledge. Now they learned, for example, they didn't know it before, but now they learned that they were naked. But I ask, did the knowledge of their nakedness make them any wiser? Did it make them more like God than they were before? And the answer is to the contrary. Now they were less like God than they had ever been before. And that's still true today. You do not become like God by sinning. You don't. You become less like him by refusing to yield to temptation. By, uh, you become less like him by, by yielding to temptation. All that happened was that with that knowledge of their nakedness, then that produced shame. It because they were shameful that they made the fig leaf garden. And again, I doubt that those fig leaf garments, and again, I doubt that those fig leaves would cover much. But after all, it's just a little thing anyway. And now they're ashamed. And now they have fear. Now, instead of looking forward to, the appoint, to their appointment with God, they are afraid to meet him when he comes to the garden to visit. They had always anticipated with delight the time that he spent with them before. But now when he comes, they do all in their power to escape his presence. Things are no longer the same between them. The relationship between them and their creator has been severed. They are not like God at all. He is holy and they are sinful. And now they do not want to be in his presence. So when he comes to seek them out, they hide in the garden. Nakedness, shame, fear, they had indeed increased their knowledge, but it was not for the better. Sin is never for the better. It always severs relationships, but it's only a little thing, just a meager thing after all. But the Bible says that it is our sins that separate us from our God, and that's not a little thing at all. It, in fact, is very, very large indeed. And then, of course, they learned how to shun responsibility. The man blamed the woman, and the woman blamed the serpent. In essence, they were trying to place the blame on God. The woman said, whom thou gavest. The serpent, you created. He's the one that beguiled me. I have a confession to make. This is what they say. I have a confession to make. It wasn't me. They did it. They did it, not me. But no matter how you cut it, Adam and Eve were moral beings created in the image of God, and their disobedience was an act of their own free will, and they are responsible for the choices they make. They must suffer the consequences of their actions. But... There were also some long-range consequences. And the first of those was the curse. 
The Bible says that it was to rest upon the serpent. The curse was. The most clever and ingenious of all the creatures was to become the lowest among the animals. He must now crawl on his belly and eat dust. And further, there would be enmity between the serpent and the descendants of the woman. By the way, that's still true because to this very day I hate snakes. How about you? There would be enmity between the serpent and the descendants of the woman. And in this strife, the serpent would be at a disadvantage for he would be able to reach only the heel of the man, whereas the man, the man, Jesus, would be able to crush the head of the serpent. But you cannot place moral responsibility upon a snake, for they are not moral beings. The curse, therefore, must be understood as being directed against the power which used the serpent as his medium. Genesis 3, verse 15, then becomes a prediction of the ultimate triumph of Eve's descendants over the deceiver through him who would mortally wound the enemy at the cross. It is, in fact, a promise of our victory through Jesus Christ. But the curse also extended to Eve. Prior to her sin, she had been equal to her husband, but now she must be, quote-unquote, in subjection to him. Don't ask me what that means, please. I don't know what it means, that she would be in subjection to him. And also, from this point on, childbearing would be a very painful process. And then even the ground was included in the curse. No longer would the ground produce in quantity or in quality the way it had before. Now thistles and thorns would be produced side by side with the fruit. And to wrest a living from the ground would now be a terrible burden to Adam. And to obtain a complete diet would require that he now eat some foods which before had been reserved only for the animals. They would now be given vegetables to eat. The animals had never before killed in order to eat. Their diet consisted only of grasses and other vegetable matter. And now because the ground would not produce like before, Adam and Eve now must begin to eat like the animals. Instead of fruit from the garden, now they are given vegetables to eat like the animals and furthermore, and this was probably the worst penalty of all, they were now expelled from the garden home. And his dominion over the animals was stripped from him. That's long-range consequence number one. The second long-range consequence of the curse was that their nature had been changed. Well, God... If you'll just overlook this one little thing, I promise that I will never, ever do it again. But here's the second long-range consequence. Listen to my favorite author again. They earnestly entreated that they might remain in the home of their innocence and joy. They confessed that they had forfeited all right 
to that happy abode, but pledged themselves for the future to yield strict obedience to God. But they were told that their nature had become depraved by the sin they had committed. They had lessened their strength to resist evil. They had opened the way for Satan to gain ready access to them. In their innocence, they had yielded to temptation, and now in a state of conscious guilt, they would never have power to maintain the integrity they had before. Well, it's only a little thing anyway, isn't it? But we have reaped the benefits of our first parents' misdeed. Every child of Adam now has the same fallen nature of our first parents. Paul says, by one man's disobedience, many were made sinners. Maybe it's not such a little thing after all. The third long-range consequence was this thing called death. Death. The day that you eat thereof, you will surely die. Expelled from the garden, they no longer had access to the tree of life, and the nourishment they received from their daily toil would not sustain them forever. They, in fact, must die. In fact, now, everything must die. My favorite author, again, makes this comment. Listen. To Eve, it seemed a small thing to disobey, to disobey God by taking the fruit and eating from the forbidden tree and to tempt her husband also to transgress. But their sin opened the floodgates of woe upon the world. Who could know in the moment of temptation the terrible consequences that, res that will result from one small step? Eve thought to herself, probably told her husband as well, well, it's just a little thing, only a small thing. Go ahead and eat. It's not going to make a big difference anyhow. It is, after all, just a little tiny uh, thing at all. By doing this, we are going to become wise. It's not going to kill us. It's just a little thing. And now our conclusion. I wonder often if Adam and Eve had known the horrendous results of that little thing, that meager mistake, would they have gone ahead and sinned? If they had known the far-reaching effects of their actions, would they still have yielded to Satan's lies? But the effects seem to be grossly out of proportion to the mistake that they made. It was just a little thing. And the question is often asked, can God be just if he inflicts such heavy punishment for such a minor offense? Let's close by answering that question. Here it is. Listen for the, fi for the final time to my favorite author. My favorite author says, The tide of woe 
that flowed from the transgression of our first parents is regarded by many as too awful a consequence for such a small sin. And they impeach the wisdom and justice of God in his dealings with man. But if they would look more deeply into this question, they might discern their error. God created man after his own likeness, free from sin. The earth was to be peopled with beings only a little lower than the angels, but their obedience must be tested, for God would not permit the world, I'm sorry, God would not permit the world to be filled with those who disregarded his law. Yet, in his great mercy, he appointed Adam no severe test, and the very lightness of the prohibition made the sin exceedingly great. If Adam could not bear the smallest of tests, how could he ever have endured a greater trial? Had some great test been appointed him, then those whose hearts inclined to evil would have excused themselves by saying, well, this is just a trivial matter, and God isn't particular about little things after all. There would be continued transgression in things looked upon as small and which pass unrebuked among men. But the Lord has made it evident that sin in any degree is offensive to him. The final and ultimate answer to this question is that that little thing, that small sin, that meager fall, actually cost the Son of God his life on a cruel cross. It's not a little thing. It's not inconsequential. The wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life. Christ died on that cross that we might enjoy life everlasting. Father, the fall in the garden was not inconsequential. It was not just a small thing that we can overlook, pay no heed to, disobey because we want. There are consequences to those choices. And one of the consequences was that it cost Jesus Christ his life on a cruel cross.